Jordan Peterson versus GQ Magazine. Mr. Reagan. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a good one. So, at first, this woman, Helen Lewis, seemed to be relatively good-spirited. She seems neutral. She's not asking disingenuous questions, and she doesn't seem to be trying to misrepresent Jordan Peterson in any way. But Jordan Peterson is still very much on his guard. It's kind of funny to watch. You see this extreme suspicion in Jordan Peterson's manner, contrasted by this girl's disarming disposition. It's about 10 minutes into the interview that Helen Lewis's radical feminist ideas start to emerge. There is one other annoying thing that happens during this video. I don't think it was on purpose, but throughout the interview, Helen Lewis's voice is crisp and clear. She's mic'd properly, whilst Jordan Peterson's voice is distant and quiet. Around 56 minutes, Jordan Peterson's mic comes on, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was, in fact, an accident of the sound recorders. I mean, it's not the end of the world, but it is kind of annoying. You've sold 2 million copies of 12 Rules for Life. You have 800,000 followers on Twitter, 1.4 million followers on YouTube. What is it that you're selling that so many people want to buy? Wisdom. He's selling wisdom. So I've been a clinician for a very long time, and I'm familiar with the works of most of the great 20th century clinicians and a reasonable amount of philosophy and a good swath of literature. And I'm a credible scientist, and so I can bring that all together. And I've tried to bring it all together and to make a case for the significance of individual life and the psychological necessity of courage and nobility and responsibility. These things that sound old-fashioned, but are old-fashioned in the best sense. They're old-fashioned because they've lasted forever and they're absolutely necessary. And people need a call to responsibility because they need to mature. They need to want to be adults. You know? And I don't think we do a very good job in our culture of making a case for why it's a good thing to be an adult. An excellent answer. So that you say in the book, you know, there is masculine order and feminine chaos. Mm -hmm. I, no, actually, I say that those are symbolic representations of the two things. Right, okay. So why? Why is order masculine? This is a point I've seen jumped on by many interviewers of Jordan Peterson. They love to point out this particular part of his book. They seem to interpret Jordan Peterson's inclusion of this phenomenon as evidence of his misogyny. Throughout history, there have been certain things which have been associated with men and certain things that have been associated with women. Because of this, cultures will often say that something is masculine or something is feminine. Now, some feminists take offense to this. They say that we should always disregard these traditional ideas because they, they sometimes associate positive things with men. Or maybe how about we don't just disregard the culmination of thousands of years of wisdom and instead try to learn from these ideas. Jordan Peterson in no way is trying to suggest in his books that men are superior to women. He's not trying to suggest that men should dominate the world. There is nothing misogynist in his message, in his literature, in anything I've ever heard him say. So why? Why is order masculine? I think it's because our primary social hierarchy structures are fundamentally masculine. And that's not the patriarchy? Well, it's not the modern idea of the patriarchy, that's for sure. I mean, that's, so that's my idea of the patriarchy, which is a, a system of male dominance of society. Yeah, but that's not my sense of the patriarchy. So what's, what's yours? Well, in what sense is our society male-dominated? Uh, the fact that the vast majority of wealth is owned by men, the vast majority of capital and is owned by men. Women do more unpaid it's a very, labor. a very tiny proportion of men and a huge proportion of people who are seriously disaffected are men. Most people in prison are men. Most people who are uh, on the street are men. Most victims of violent crime are men. Most people who commit suicide are men. Uh, most men 
most people who die in wars are men. People who do worse in school are men. It's like, where's the dominance here precisely? Okay, that was amazing. What you're doing is you're taking a tiny substrata of hyper-successful men and using that to represent the entire structure of, the, of Western society. There's nothing about that that's vaguely appropriate. But I could say equally well that most rape victims are women. You know, terrible things happen to people of both sexes. She just doesn't get it. She's suggesting that we live in this venomous patriarchy. Jordan Peterson points out that we do not live in a venomous patriarchy. He's saying, he's saying look, a lot of men suffer. She comes back with, well, some women suffer. That's not the point, lady. The point is lots of different kinds of people suffer, including men. There are lots of women who hold positions of power over suffering men. Women can do whatever they want to do in our society. Nobody is stopping them. This woman has obviously been convinced that the reason that there aren't more female CEOs is because sexist men are stopping them. She obviously hasn't heard that women are far less likely to want to take positions of power or to do what it takes to get that position of power. Some women actually want to be housewives, contrary to what feminists and the mainstream media tries to tell everybody. But I could say equally well that most rape victims are women. You know, terrible things happen to people of both sexes. And you could say that with, with, with perfect utility, but that doesn't provide any evidence for the existence of a male-dominated patriarchy. Well, there it are... just means that terrible things happen to both genders, which they certainly do. But there are almost no women who rape men. <laughs> this actually made me laugh out loud. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Okay, sure, there are no men getting raped by women. Fine. You know what? There are also no false rape allegations leveled against women by men. Men do some bad things, women do other bad things. These things are not always the same things. In what world does that have anything to do with your pretend patriarchy? The fact that there are asymmetries has nothing to do with your basic argument. No, but you might this equally... Is, this is a trope that people just accept. Western society is a male-dominated patriarchy. It's like, no, it's not. That's not true. And, and even if it even if it has a patriarchal structure to some degree, the, uh, the fundamental basis of that structure is not power, it's competence. That's why our society works. It's only when a, when a structure degenerates into tyranny that the fundamental relationships between people become dependent on power. It's not power. If you hire a plumber who's likely to be male, it's not because there's roving bands of tyrannical plumbers forcing you to make that choice. This is actually a new thing. I haven't actually heard Jordan Peterson say this before. More importantly, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say this before with regard to the whole patriarchy thing. But it's absolutely right. It's such a brilliant thing to say. I'm actually a little bit annoyed that I didn't think of it myself. I guess I didn't think about it because I hadn't really thought about the core reasons why women think that we live in a venomous patriarchy. I didn't really take those ideas seriously. But of, co of course, of course that's why they think the patriarchy is bad. They look at men as being more powerful than them. This is, this is actually kind of like something I thought about many years ago with regard to you know, why women sometimes become feminists. I had this idea that often uh, feminist women had feelings of inferiority because men were physically stronger than they were. I realized that it has to be frustrating knowing that almost 50% of the population is always going to be physically stronger than you. That immediately puts somebody for their entire life at a kind of disadvantage psychologically. Healthy women, psychologically healthy women, recognize that they have other values that they can use to compensate for that lack of physical strength. Some women use their physical attractiveness to manipulate men. Other women use their intellect. Some women who happen to be particularly physically fit focus very acutely on the fitness and actually become physically stronger than most men. 
But these feminists, I, I think they're psychologically unhealthy and they don't actually want to do anything to compete in our society against the men who they regard as having an intrinsic advantage. So I think this is crucial. It is absolutely crucial to make this point, and I'm so glad that Jordan Peterson makes it here. Our society does not function under a system of the physical threat of violence and submission. Our society functions under a system of competence and assessment. As Peterson says, if you're going to hire a plumber, you don't do so because he might physically attack you if you don't hire him. You hire him because he seems like the best plumber in your assessment. Or maybe he's the cheapest, or he's the closest to you, or, or whatever your priority is. Furthermore, if you want to go get a job somewhere, then you must be assessed. And then you can get hired or, or not hired based on the assessment of the person you're trying to get the job with. You can't physically threaten people to give you a job or you go to jail. <laughs> We're not rabid packs of wolves. We're a, a fairly sophisticated society of human beings. So, like, I, this whole patriarchy thing, I think you have no idea how pernicious and dangerous it is. Well, no, you I know, don't. I really don't. Go throughout history have fundamentally cooperated to push back against the absolute catastrophe of existence. A terrible death rate, the, the probability of chronic starvation, early death, disease, the difficulty of raising children with all the death that was associated with that. And to look backwards in time and say, well, basically what happened was men took the upper hand and persecuted women in this tyrannical patriarchy is it's absolutely dreadful misreading of history. It's a terrible thing to teach young women and it's a horrible thing to inflict upon men. I mean, I absolutely disagree with you. I think that's like saying slavery in the US was actually most people cooperate. Well, no, you didn't. You had a system where one set of people owned another set of people. And until women got full legal rights, they could own property for themselves, they could work. Essentially, they were owned. They were you're first owned lowest, by their fathers and then the by their husbands. Status to the domination by men. Yeah. You already said that you thought that what emancipated women primarily in the 20th century was technological revolution. No, not okay, primarily, so but that's it? one of two. I think that's it's two not things. not primarily, though. eh? No, you I don't think the pill was a primary force in the emancipation of women. I think or the invention of, of tampons, let's say, or the, or the provision of proper sanitary uh, facilities, uh, toilets and that sort of thing. You're, you're, you're thinking instead it was the action of courageous feminists in the 1920s that produced a social revolution that overthrew the patriarchy. That's your theory. Yeah, I That's think... That's a foolish theory. Jordan Peterson is brilliant. This, this also made me laugh out loud when I heard it for the first time. I hear a lot of women talk in the same way that this woman, Helen Lewis, is talking here. They have this idea that historically women were treated like property. And this is not an idea about women 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago. This is an idea about women in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 30s. But you know what? I, I'm a big movie buff and I've watched a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s. These are some of my favorite movies of all time. Films tend to reflect the culture of the day. I can tell you 100% these films do not show women being treated like property. Much of the time, they show strong women manipulating and mistreating men. Women were often the dominant figures in relationships. I don't think this was just true in the 30s and 40s. I think this has always been true. I, I have a degree in literature, and let me tell you, if you want to know about history, read literature from the time you want to know about. It's incredible, because it gives you the perspective of a writer from that era. When I was studying literature, I read some Jane Austen. Now, now, we're talking about like the 1780s into the early 1800s. This is over 200 years ago. The women in these books are often very, very powerful. If you read Dickens, same thing. Throughout history, you will find literature that beautifully represents various periods in time in Europe. And throughout time, you will find dominant women who control and mistreat men. Men have never been 100% dominant in society. It is exactly as Jordan Peterson says. 
men and women work together to try to make life better for both of them. Sometimes you'll find bad people who will try to dominate and mistreat other people. Sometimes those people are men, and sometimes those people are women. The idea that we should just give women more power, that will not fix the problem. What we need to focus on is giving good people power. And it shouldn't matter if that good person is a man or a woman. It seems to me that this interviewer, Helen Lewis, and other feminists are actually just sexists. They want to advance women in society simply because it's what they personally want, not because it's actually better for the world. This possibly stems from her feelings of inferiority for being physically inferior to men, but there are a myriad of reasons why people take on irrational biases, so she may have a drastically different motivation, but whatever the case, this woman seems to me to be an extreme bigot. Why would you even want to look at history like that? Like, what, what's, your, what's your goal? Because exactly. I think the people who don't look at history are condemned to repeat it, and I think that we are... We're gonna, what are we going to do? Repeat the... The persecution of women. That, you yeah. think that's a realistic possibility? Yeah, we're sitting here. How do you see that? We're sitting happening? here in America, right, where we've just had a fifth judge appointed to the Supreme Court who is now anti-abortion, who's now conservative. I think that abortion rights are absolutely fundamental to women being able to function as full humans in society. And I think that is now under threat in America. I think it is extremely smug and complacent to think civilization has peaked, it's all upwards from here. I think it's smug and complacent to be you, Helen. You are the most smug and complacent person I have ever seen. Okay, maybe not complacent. Take away the complacent, double up the smug. This woman thinks that because Brett Kavanaugh has been appointed to the Supreme Court, there is a threat of women being persecuted in Western society. She thinks that a legal right to abortion is fundamental to a woman being able to function as a full human in society. Well, there are millions of women who disagree with you, Helen. <laughs> it always annoys me when women turn the abortion issue into some kind of women's rights issue. The question of abortion is simply whether the fetus has the same intrinsic value as a fully grown human. That is the only question anyone should ever ask about abortion. I actually go into this in further depth in my video that I, I just did, simply called abortion. You can watch my full thoughts on abortion in that video if you so wish. But this woman is clearly brainwashed. She thinks that if you're against abortion and for saving the lives of little babies, then you are a misogynist. This is moronic. You no, know, there are just a lot of people, I would say, who are coming to listen to what I say because they're sick and tired of having their desire to move forward in the world and to achieve something and to take their place as adult males, let's say, who are under the weight of accusations that they're ambition and forthrightness is a manifestation of something that's fundamentally tyrannical. They're not happy with that. It's not doing anyone any good, and it's also not true. It's really a terrible thing to do to young men, and it's happening all the time. That's why they're bailing out of universities like mad. There won't be a man left in the social sciences in 10 years in the universities, and it's no bloody wonder. It's an unhospitable place, and it's unhospitable precisely because of this doctrine. Said that throughout history, the fundamental relationship between men and women was one of power, essentially slavery. It's like, fine, believe it if you want. It's not going to do your relationships any good, I can tell you that. So. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see how that one goes. Mm. I'm, I'm currently married. Whoa, 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 whoa. She has a husband? <laughs> I feel so sorry for that guy. In fact, in fact, I would love to meet that guy. He's got to be the most beta of all the beta males on the planet. Oh man, you just know that she treats that guy like total garbage. 
I think the university's example is a really fascinating one because you talk in the book about the fact that now women are a majority on two-thirds of college courses in the US. Uh, and, you know, I've also seen you saying, well, you believe in equality of opportunity but not equality of outcome. Maybe women... It isn't only that I don't believe oh. in equality of outcome. I think it's an unbelievably pathological wish and doctrine. Right, and but, okay. It's dangerous. History has demonstrated exactly how dangerous it is. Equality of opportunity is something that anyone with any sense would support. But equality of outcome, it's... So what's your you problem with there not being... beyond belief to, to, to support equality of outcome. Okay, so what's your problem with there not being enough men in the social sciences? Perhaps women are just cleverer. Perhaps that's why there are more women at university, Could right? Be. Under your doctrine. I don't think that, but that's well, I think the logical the extension of your doctrine. The isn't the fact that there's an unequal distribution. The problem I have with it is that the reason that men are bailing out is because of the prevalence of the doctrine that you're espousing. That's the problem I have with it. It doesn't matter that much. They will bail out. I don't see any way that the universities are going to redeem themselves in the next decade. So, and, and maybe that will be fine. But I doubt it. We'll see. That seems extremely pessimistic when the, majority, the numbers of people going to university just generally are going up. Yeah, well, that's not going to last for very long. Why not? Because it's too expensive and the universities are doing all sorts of things that aren't um, acceptable. Mostly racking up the price, ratcheting up the price. So, and, and decreasing the quality of what they're offering and playing into the hands of the people who are ideological acolytes of the identity politics routines and playing postmodern stunts and pushing neo-Marxism and all these things that are characteristic of, of the social sciences and the humanities primarily. This is absolutely true in my personal experience. I studied film and literature at the University of Miami. I had a double major. This was in the early 2000s. It was an enormous waste of money. When I went to school, the conventional wisdom was that if you went to college and you got a bachelor's degree, that you would be guaranteed some kind of, some level of success out in the working world. Not true. My generation was really the first generation to discover that this is no longer the case. I think the millennials and the generation after the millennials have it a little bit better in that they are no longer being told that if they go to college, they'll be handed a career afterwards. They kind of get it. They're a bit more savvy about this. They understand that getting a bachelor's degree is not what it used to be, and that if they want a guaranteed job, they've got to get a master's degree, and even then, you know, they're going to be competing against people with a great deal of experience, and so going to college is a guarantee of nothing. There are tons of people who have taken the route of either dropping out of college or just starting work immediately after high school, and a lot of these people are doing incredibly well. I can tell you that my friend Kurt, my writing partner, is one of the best educated people I know, and he never went to college. So... You know, I find myself having conversations with Kurt, and I find that we're both pretty much on the same level intellectually. Oftentimes, he knows a little bit more than me about this, and I know a little bit more than him about that. But we've got a very similar level of education. And I spent an obscene amount of money to go to university, and he spent zero. <laughs> Furthermore, almost everything I know about everything comes from my own research. Very little valuable information was gained, at least in my experience, from university. In fact, despite having a film degree, I didn't really know anything about film lenses or cameras until after I graduated and watched videos about this stuff on YouTube. You know, you talk in these quite apocalyptic terms. I think that, you know, someone who will listen to that and think, wow, there's a really big problem. But what we're really talking about is some irritatingly postmodern professors and some students with blue hair and funny ideas about gender in a handful of courses around America if and Western If that's what we Western were talking Europe. about, no one would have paid attention to me for more than about 15 minutes. So you might see this as some surface manifestation that's irrelevant, but that isn't how most people view it. Ah, it's okay. certainly the case, too, that this identity politics battle of ideas was a determining factor in the last American election. 
if Hillary wouldn't have played identity politics, played cozy with the identity politics types, she would have kept the working class and she would be president now. So these aren't trivial issues by okay. any stretch of the imagination. It's not just some kids having a decent time while they're being creatively rebellious at university. It's a much deeper problem than that. The doctrine, the doctrines that I'm opposed to are predicated on, well, one assumption they're predicated on, it's probably the primary assumption, is that the best way to view history is as the domination of a tyrannical male patriarchy, and that's true also particularly of the West, which is a doctrine I find absolutely unpalatable and historically absurd, biologically ridiculous and ungrateful, among other things. Who's, ungr who's ungrateful, sorry, in that? Who is being ungrateful? <laughs> she really wanted to catch him on this one. She was desperately hoping that he was going to say that she, as a woman, should be grateful for men for having provided for her all the amenities that she now has and lives with. But she should be grateful to men for all of those things. I mean, does she think that the chair that she's sitting in was built by a woman? Does she think that that little room that they're in was built by a woman? Does she, does she think that the microphones that they're using or the camera that they're being shot with, do, do you think anything like that was invented by women? No. The car, the plane, the computer, man, man, man. I have a huge appreciation for everything that women do in this society. I think women are phenomenal. I spend most of my time with a woman, my girlfriend, Valeria, who I think more of than pretty much any other human being on the planet. But this woman, who apparently has a husband, seems to get all stirred up about the idea that maybe she should be grateful to men historically. You should be grateful, lady. Men make everything that you use. Look at what you have. Right. You live in the best society that's ever been created. You know, I was reading about some Indonesians. I mean, do you mean me as a woman or me as a 21st us. century person in, in the world? I mean us, yeah. I mean, you, I'm incredibly you. grateful for what I have, but to me the then project of politics is... how is it the destruction of a tyrannical patriarchy? You're grateful for the productions of a tyrannical patriarchy. How does that make sense? Because I think life is good. I think it could be better. That, that's, that's what being fine. a progressive means. That's a perfectly means. reasonable proposition. But, I guess but you... that isn't commensurate with your claim that you're the beneficiary of a tyrannical patriarchy. Why not? How can it be good if it's the consequence of a tyrannical patriarchy? Tyranny isn't good, is it? I mean, that's the definition of tyranny. Something that isn't good, and yet it's produced all these things that you're grateful for. Like, doesn't that contradict and contradiction bother you? Where did, where did what was good come from? Where is, well, I think, from, I think I'm benefiting, actually, from a lot of things that I don't support, that are unearned privileges in my life. I think that's absolutely true. Like your job? Like I have a very good job. I had a loving family. Quit. Who, who, well, I don't think that's going to do the world any good, is it? That's a hell of a fine rationalization for your privileged position. Oh, well, fair enough. But, I, you know, if you I, could trade it off with someone who's less privileged. I could. That'd be a start. I could. I could do that. And, and, uh, but I don't, I don't want to, and I, and I won't, and I don't think Why I not? should be expected to. It was once said by Lord Mandelson in British politics, you know, New Labour was okay with people being filthy rich as long as they paid their taxes. Now, I'm kind of less okay with people being filthy rich. But Define what I filthy do, rich. Well, that, I think I would leave that You're to... You're probably in the top one-tenth of one percent of people who've ever lived on the planet. That would constitute filthy rich by historical standards. Okay, but I'm not so sure where, that where I'm going to... So where is the line exactly? This is an absolutely brilliant point Jordan Peterson is making. In fact, we should all make this point whenever we are accused of having some unearned privilege because we're white or male or straight or whatever. This woman is more privileged than almost anyone in the world. She is much more privileged than people historically. So if she's not willing to give up her privilege for the less privileged, how can she condemn men for being oppressive? You're probably in the top one-tenth of one percent of people who've ever lived on the planet. 
that would constitute filthy rich by historical standards. Okay, but I'm not so sure where, that where I'm going to line exactly? be able to help the Neanderthals at this point, really, by giving up some money. She doesn't think that giving up her privilege will improve the lives of Neanderthals thousands of years ago. This is hilarious. <laughs> Here, she literally makes the argument as to why leftists shouldn't be blaming straight white men for everything. Even if straight white men were guilty of all the sins in history, which they are not, it still does not make sense that straight white men today should pay for the sins of straight white men from 100 years ago or from 1,000 years ago. We're not going to make the lives of the slaves in the 1800s in the South better. In this moment, she literally contradicts the position of all leftists everywhere. But I'm not so sure where, that where I'm going to be able to help the Neanderthals at this point, really, by giving up some money. Hilariously, she is completely unaware that she just did this. Yeah. Well, what if the patriarchy is fundamentally composed of women? Is it still a patriarchy? No, that would be a matriarchy. Would it? So let's say we take a patriarchal structure, like yeah. the medical profession, and we fill it primarily with women. Is it then a matriarchal structure? What makes it a patriarchy to begin with? Is it the hierarchical structure? Is it, is it the fact that it's mostly men? Is it the sociological structure? Or is it the fact that it's mostly men? Well, I think that's really interesting because male primary school teachers, for example, only 15% of them are men. And I interviewed mm. some of them for my book. And you know what? They report exactly the same things that women do in male-dominated offices, right? They say, people have conversations that I feel excluded from. I feel stigmatized, like I shouldn't be here. People look at me askance when I say I'm a primary school teacher and I'm a man. You know, they kind of reel back. We all make those implicit associations. Oh, no. Oh, no. There's a group of people who are underrepresented in a particular job. They feel marginalized. They don't feel welcome. Here's how you solve that. You grow a pair of testicles. You man up. You stop being a little bitch. I used to have a job where I parked cars. I was a valet. Almost everybody I worked with was black. It was all black guys. And you know what? Not all of those guys liked me. My boss, who really didn't like me, would favor some of the other employees over me. I, I don't just think it was a race thing. I, th I think it was probably more of a personality thing. He and I just didn't jive. That's okay. That sort of thing happens in the workplace. I probably wouldn't invite him over for a housewarming party, but I don't harbor any ill will toward him. Note, many of the guys there were racist. They were admittedly racist. They would tell me, well, everybody's a little racist. And I would tell them, no, no, they are not. Just because you're racist, that doesn't mean that everybody is. Now, despite... The difference between me and the other guys despite our different cultures our different races our different politics most of us tended to get along really really well some of my favorite people in la are guys i met while doing that valet job i still keep in touch with some of the guys we even plan on doing projects together in the future never once did i consider that because i was a minority in the group that i was somehow a victim i recognize that sometimes you're going to be a little bit different than the people you're working with you're going to be a minority that's just life I've been in countless situations where I was the odd man out. I was different than everybody else I was around. Heck, I, I lived in Los Angeles. If I wasn't open to being friends with leftists, I would have zero friends. But I do live in LA. I, I got a degree in film production. I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew I was going into a field which almost everybody was a leftist. I was willing to do that because this is the profession I wanted to do. Men who go into teaching recognize that it's a female-dominated profession. Men who go into medicine know that it's a female-dominated profession. And women who go into construction know that it's a male-dominated profession. If you want to go into a field in which you're going to be different, unusual, the odd man out, you've got to recognize that not everybody's probably going to celebrate you as their prince or princess. You're not necessarily going to be the special one. 
okay? You're not gonna be coddled. People probably aren't gonna consider you the best. They're gonna be skeptical. You're gonna have to prove yourself. It's not a bad thing, that's just natural. People have preconceptions based on their own experiences. If somebody's never seen a woman do construction and they see a woman doing construction, they're gonna be curious. They, they might even doubt that the woman is going to be good at it, okay? Same thing goes with a male nurse. Same thing goes with a male school teacher. It's not bad that the majority of a particular profession is a particular gender or a particular race or, you know, particular culture or something, something else, some, or, you know, some other specific demographic. And it's not a bad thing that people are skeptical when an unusual type of person tries to succeed in a particular profession. That oddity is going to be interesting to people. And a lot of people are going to doubt that the experiment is going to be successful. And it's not because they're sexist or racist or anything like that. It's just because most experiments fail. That just tends to be true about the world, about, you know, everything. You can assume that every person who is mean to a black guy is a racist. But sometimes there are other natural, reasonable reasons for people to act the way that they do. And it's, it's not all the product of bigotry. If you're convinced that America is crawling with bigots in every corner of the country, then sure, you're probably going to think that everything that happens is somehow tied in with bigotry. This is the fundamental misperception of the left. And it's, and it's why this woman is delusional. Well, Everybody one else of the in the things middle. that I've strived to do is not to become resentful. Well, okay, that's very good. I have to say that your Twitter feed does not give me that impression. You come across as somebody who takes criticism very much to heart. Is that true? This is kind of an interesting accusation. This woman seems to think that Jordan Peterson is somehow like a resentful a-hole who becomes emotionally distraught at any criticism against him. I, I don't really know what she's talking about. I don't follow Jordan Peterson's Twitter. I'm actually not really on Twitter, and I know I should be, but anyway. I think if Jordan Peterson were to post a lot of petty, resentful things on his Twitter feed, I, I presume that he would be criticized a lot more for it. His critics seem to try to criticize him for everything they can possibly find to distort into something worthy of criticism. It's actually a really insidious trick just to claim that somebody consistently posts petty, resentful things on Twitter without providing any specific examples. If she really believed this, and, and it was something that she had anticipated bringing up during the interview, she really should have provided some examples so that we can see exactly what she's talking about. Without specific accusations, it's incredibly difficult to defend such a criticism. It basically boils down to, you write petty, resentful things on Twitter. No, I don't. Okay, I, I would imagine most reporters with any kind of integrity would want to avoid this type of character defamation slash denial. The whole, you're an idiot, no I'm not type banter makes everybody look like a child. Peterson will, of course, defend his reputation and his ideas, but that isn't petty or resentful or emotional. That's just the right thing to do. If he simply rolled over and acquiesced to every criticism laid against him, he would not be a formidable figure. Although I'm sure this reporter would prefer if he did just that. I don't think you have any grounds for that suggestion. I mean, you've seen my interviews online. If I was someone who took criticism at heart, I'd be in a lot more trouble than I am now. In what way? Well, I've been criticized endlessly for two years. I've been in scandals. I've probably been in, I don't know how many scandals in the last two years, and had unbelievably contentious interviews with journalists online, on TV, on radio, in podcasts. If I was someone who couldn't tolerate criticism, the evidence for that would already be clear. You write in 12 Rules for Life about having had violent impulses that you didn't act on. And I think in Maps of Meaning, you elaborate on that. You say you fantasise about stabbing a classmate in the neck. And you say you're very clear about the fact that you, you know, you've never, ever thought that you would take those seriously. But it just does make me think whether or not are you somebody who thrives on anger, who finds anger to be something that they need in their life, that they find motivates them to do the things that they need to do. What a loaded question. Do you think she'd ask Hillary Clinton this? Do you think she'd ask... Oprah this. If Barack Obama put something about violence in his book Dreams for My Father and she got to interview him, do you think she'd ask him that question? 
No, of course not. She asked Jordan Peterson this because she wants to put the idea in the mind of her viewers. She's not really asking Jordan Peterson if anger motivates him. She's telling her viewers that anger motivates Jordan Peterson. Whatever Jordan Peterson's response is here, it doesn't matter. The seed has been planted in the minds of this reporter's leftist viewers. This is such a bitchy trick to pull. I hate when reporters do this, and, and to be honest, I don't even think this woman thinks she's doing anything wrong. I think she genuinely believes that anger motivates Jordan Peterson, and she's just trying to point out something that she's already determined to be true. Now, I, I don't think there's ever been a time in history in which news reporting was purely objective, but I think there were times in which most of the high-profile reporters in the most esteemed newspapers at least tried to be objective. This woman is merely trying to appear to be objective. Nothing that she says is in any way objective whatsoever. This interview is purely a vicious assault against Jordan Peterson by a radical feminist who is conducting an interview in the style of an objective reporter. But that's the only thing that's even remotely objective here. The aesthetic, the appearance, the style. The substance, her motives, her biased perspective, these are all 100% transparent to anyone who is even remotely savvy. I don't really like conflict. I'm actually a rather agreeable person, which is partly why I'm a clinician. And so um, I find the, the constant conflict exhausting. You're morally obligated to do things other than that which you like. So now I really do enjoy the lecture series that I'm doing. And the reason for that is that it's not political in its essence. I'm trying to do everything I can to bring people who are trying to develop a vision for their life together and to encourage them to act more responsibly, but, but not in a finger-wagging sort of way, but because I've come to understand that the meaning that sustains you in life is mostly to be found through responsibility. And through the voluntary adoption of responsibility, you're very likely to find your fundamental strength. And I think that that's clinically unassailable observation and it seems to be having a salutary effect as far as I can tell but it's not because I thrive on anger I mean you were at my show what two on two Thursday night ago? yeah how much anger was there in that well I thought it was fascinating because it was in Long Island um, mm -hmm. I drove we drove to it and we went past a Lamborghini dealership a, a Porsche dealership you know this is not a poor area mm -hmm. the audience was I would say very like as I was surprised how many women there it was pretty mixed it was overwhelmingly white and I thought you talked uh, you know, you said at the end, I was more incoherent than I normally am. You ranged across quite a range of subjects from, you know, status in monkeys to perception. But the things that the crowd clapped and they applauded were where you went, oh, you can't say that, that's a microaggression. Mm -hmm. Or multiculturalism is a, you know, is a scourge that is sweeping Canada. And what I got was a strong Snow sense... that has swept Canada. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, what I got was a very strong sense of people whose lives... I never said that it was a scourge that swept Canada either. I wouldn't have said that. Okay. Well, I, I will go back and that. check your exact wording of what you mm -hmm. said, but you definitely... Can... I'm not in favor of it as a fundamental doctrine. Right. Okay. But so I don't think it's a scourge. So I wonder if you and I mean the same thing when we talk about multiculturalism, because you have uh, a First Nations room in your house, right? You have a lot mm -hmm. of First Nations stuff. Mm -hmm. How is the coexistence I'm of... the honorary member of a First Nations family, as a right, matter of which fact. Which one of all, I have a, uh, a First Nations artist, and mm -hmm. when I'm from when I went to Canada last year. Oh, isn't she just so tolerant and inclusive and cultured? She has a necklace from an Indian artist. <laughs> the left has this kind of prove that you're not a racist testing system. And then, and then beyond that, if you're able to prove that you're not a racist because you collect 
Indian art or some crap, then it becomes a pissing contest. Just just how not racist are you? You know, I, I think I'm, I'm way more not racist than you are. Oh, you're part of an Indian family? Well, <laughs> I have some Indian artwork around my neck, so, you know, so I'm more not racist than you. First of all, if these kinds of not racist competitions were of any value at all, Jordan Peterson wins. Secondly, this is moronic. Nobody cares if you have an Indian necklace on, lady. Nobody's gonna think that you're a racist if you're not wearing an Indian necklace. They're not going to think you're racist because you're white and white people aren't racist. This woman would hate me so, so unbelievably much. I, I, I would love to meet her and record her reaction to me just, just as a person. I think it would be hilarious. Just talking like, like normal conversation. She would really hate me. But that to me is the essence of Canadian multiculturalism, living, that culture being preserved and living alongside the Anglophone culture that in some senses supplanted it. How is that not multiculturalism? Helen Lewis has done a very strange thing here. Jordan Peterson mentioned that Helen came to one of his shows and he asked her if he seemed angry during the presentation. He said this in response to her suggestion that he was motivated by anger. And she buried that answer under insinuations of racism. She talked about how how white his audience was, condemning him by suggestion that he only spoke to white people, despite her being surprised at how many women had been in attendance. Having figured out through her own ramblings this new line of attack, she then s somehow goes after him on race. She points out that he's had some dealings with Canadian Indians and then said that preserving Indian culture and Indians living alongside Anglophonic Canadians, which, by the way, is simply an esoteric way of saying English-speaking Canadians, uh, you know, that this is the essence of multiculturalism. She then asked Jordan Peterson how, how that is not the essence of multiculturalism. But Jordan Peterson has never claimed that that wasn't the essence of multiculturalism. In fact, Jordan Peterson really doesn't tend to say much about multiculturalism. That tends to be Lauren Southern's issue. But in fairness, it's easy to mix up us conservative YouTubers. Jordan Peterson and Lauren Southern do, after all, look exactly alike. What's happening here is that this woman, Helen Lewis, has bought the leftist delusion whole hog. She is fully convinced that everyone on the right, every conservative, is a racist, a sexist, a homophobe. Therefore, it makes sense to go after Jordan Peterson on every one of these issues. Nevertheless, Jordan Peterson knows where this woman is going with her questions and is perfectly willing to provide an answer. He actually provides, essentially, the Lauren Southern answer, which is awesome. The answer being, different cultures cannot always necessarily live harmoniously together. Sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, different cultures conflict. You can have a multi-ethnic, homogenous culture, but having multiple cultures living together will almost certainly invite conflict. Just look at what's happened in Sweden, look what's happened in Germany. Most of the time when people are concerned about multiculturalism in America, they're talking about the conflict between Islam and American culture. A lot of people from Islamic cultures have very different ethical ideas than people from Western cultures. Many of them, for instance, think that murdering gay people is okay. Even white supremacists in America don't tend to go around killing gay people. You will occasionally find a Looney Tunes person, like the guy who shot up the synagogue, but they're not even a typical white supremacist. They're not just way off in crazy land. They're way, way off in crazy land. When we're talking about Islamic culture, we're talking about a typical Islamic man believing that it's okay to kill gay people. Now, of course, this is not true in every Islamic country, but it is true in many Islamic countries. It's not even just that extreme example. It's also things as simple as thinking racism is acceptable. And the Islamic world does not have a monopoly on that. That tends to be true of every other culture outside of the Anglophone and Northern European world. That is, 
outside of white culture, racism tends to be normal. Leftists are obsessed with the idea of open borders. They want to let in all kinds of poor immigrants, but they're also obsessed with being anti-racist. These two things are in 100% conflict. So basically, leftists are in favor of bringing into America millions of new racists, despite claiming to be radically against racism. The truth is that the left does not have a consistent set of ethics. The left classifies people into a hierarchy of value based on who they like. They like black people, so black people are near the top. They like gays, so gays are near the top. They like immigrants, so immigrants are near the top. They don't like white people or men or Christians, so they're all at the bottom. The left tries to promote the success and well-being of the groups they like, and they try to bring down the groups that they don't like. So if you're one of their favorite classes and you're a racist, that's okay. You get a pass. But if you're in one of their despised groups, even if you're not a racist, even if you're not homophobic, even if you're not sexist, you're still a racist, sexist, homophobe. It's because they want you to be. You're just that way because they say you are. In truth, the left is a collection of psychological projectionists. They're bigots who claim not to be bigots, and they point their fingers at their enemies, us conservatives, and claim that we are actually the bigots. It's despicable. They're racists who point to white people whom they hate and say white people are racist. They're sexists who point to men whom they hate and say men are sexists. They're religiously intolerant bigots who point to Christians whom they hate and say Christians are religiously intolerant bigots. They are a collection of psychological projectionists projecting their own bigotry on anyone whom they hate. And make no mistake, that is exactly what this woman, Helen Lewis, is doing to Jordan Peterson. Well, multiculturalism is the idea that the cultures can all be put together in a single place with no overarching structure or undergirding structures. Like, that's not the case. How can that possibly be the case? That defines the situation in the world. And the world is full of war. So how, does the, how can that possibly work? If you're going to bring people together and they're going to, be, and they're going to exist together in harmony, they have to be playing a game that everyone plays, that everyone knows the rules for. It can't be ten different sets of rules for different people. That isn't going to work. So it's, it's absolutely naive to believe. How? If that worked, the world wouldn't be full of war. Well, before we had, you know, multiculturalism, we still did have war. War, in fact, war is, as Stephen Pinker, I'm sure you read your Stephen Pinker says, you know, this is the least violent time in human history. So yes, something well, that's is working. that's a consequence of working. the patriarchal tyranny. I, my definition of multiculturalism is citizenship-based, right? So you can be both Canadian and First Nations. You can be both Quebecois and also Canadian. Uh, you yeah, know, but that means that everybody in the multicultural milieu is one thing and another. Right. But they're all one thing and another. Yeah. Yeah, well, you but know, our Prime Minister said, well, there is no Canadian identity. It's like, well, okay, what is it that unites us? Well, well nothing. We all protect our cultures. It's like, well, that leads to war. Okay, well, it doesn't only lead to war, obviously, but unless you have people operating within a shared framework of perception and value, they can't cooperate and compete peacefully. I don't understand how that's even a disputable topic. That's how you organize people. Okay, I, I think if business. that's what he said, that's what Trudeau said, that is a dumb thing for the Prime Minister of Canada to say when you are Prime Minister of Canada. I yeah, you might, you might say that. I would agree right. much more mm. with what Barack Obama said when he said, you know, I'm trying not to make a red states America or blue states America or white America, black America. I'm trying to make a United States America. That to me yes, is... Yes, the Democrats are very good at that. Well, they, they Play, tried... They've played identity politics for the last 20 years. All they've done is inflame tribal, tribal tendencies, as far as I can tell. 
So he can say that, but it isn't obvious that it's the case. And it's not obvious to me at all that one of the consequences of Barack Obama's presidency was a reduction in racial tension in the United States. No, I wouldn't agree with that either. I think a lot of people found having a black college-educated professor very alarming and threatening. Of course, of course she thinks that. This is the most idiotic claim that I have ever heard. Leftists always trot out this criticism of right-wing conservatives. Right-wing conservatives are all intimidated, we're all scared, we're all threatened by powerful black people or powerful women. That's the word they really like to use, threatened. I don't actually think that they believe this, but it sounds so good to them. It's, like, it's a way of claiming that people on the right are both bigoted and weak. The suggestion is that white men are oppressive, racists, and sexist, but the grip that they have on their insidious power is so weak that they're desperately afraid that it will slip away. They're powerful and evil, but also weak and pathetic at the same time. None of them actually believe it, but because it sounds so good, they often restate the claim as, you know, as if they believe that it's true. Straight white Christian men who are politically conservative feel threatened by everybody, and that's why, that's why we have divisions in the United States. No, 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 yeah. It couldn't possibly be that leftists are constantly telling black kids that white people oppress their ancestors. It can't possibly be that feminists are constantly telling women that men are evil oppressors and they need to stand up against them. No, no, no. It couldn't be that the, the left is training every elementary school child and every college student that straight white men are evil and that every, everybody else is an angelic victim that needs to fight against them. No, it couldn't possibly be any of those things because leftists, leftists, remember, are the good guys. The whole idea of the United States, it said, I think a beautiful thing, all men are created equal, but it meant men, and it meant specifically white men. No, it did not. In fact, Thomas Jefferson originally included a strong anti-slavery clause in the Declaration of Independence. The clause reads as follows. He, King George III of England, has waged war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This practical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. Furthermore, let me explain clearly that the clause in the Constitution, all men are created equal, absolutely, demonstrably, did not mean just white men. In the olden days, the word men meant all humans. It meant men and women. The fact that a lot of these leftist intellectuals, college professors, feminists, insist that the language of the past using the word men indicate that historically people were sexist and were oppressing women, it's absurd. They all know very well that this is not true. They know that the word men was used to indicate all humans, but they, they for whatever reason, found it to be a viable trick to con convince people that it did not mean all humans, that it just means males. The professors know it's not true, the feminists know it's not true, and this woman knows it's not true. The US was founded on identity politics. This is not some new concept that has come along in the last 20 years. The United States wasn't founded on identity politics. Yes, it was. That's absolutely absurd proposition. The United States was founded on the same principles that, um, what would you say, that, that played their powerful role through the development of, of, of English democracy. And that was nested inside a Judeo-Christian view that fundamentally presumed that both men and women were made in the image of God and that all people had divine value. And it took a long time for that set of ideas to fully manifest itself in the political realm. But to consider that a manifestation of identity politics is, 
I, I, I can't imagine why you would possibly do that. I don't consider that a manifestation of identity politics. I consider having a constitution that says only some people are citizens to be a manifestation of identity politics. Well, what do you think changed it across time? And, uh, and, and look, let's get our definition straight here. You can't lump all occurrences of uh, non-equal treatment into the c- category of identity politics. Identity politics is a very specific thing. It's really only existed since the 1970s. You can't go back into to 1770 and say that the founders of the American Constitution were playing identity politics. They were you playing politics that, that was based on identity. That's my definition of identity that's politics. That's not the definition of identity politics unless you pay, play fast and loose with the definition. Identity politics is something that's... In, no one talked about identity politics 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's a new term. You, you can't say that people's proclivity to identify with their group is identity politics. That's just tribalism. And that's like, who knows how old that is? A million years old. 500,000 years old. And you're going to call tribalism identity politics? Well, that's not helpful. If you want to talk about tribalism, we could talk about tribalism. But identity politics is something that's nested inside a particular political view of the world. It's got a Marxist basis, and it manifests itself in postmodernism. And it emerged in the American Union, France first, in the 1970s, and then has swept through the American universities and increasingly the rest of the West since then. That's identity politics. Thank you. Yes, exactly right. I have pointed this out in previous videos. A lot of these things that the left identifies as bigotry is what I refer to as familiarity bias. The left has this idea that white people are prone to unconscious bias, or what they call implicit bias, and that this is somehow an insidious kind of racism that white people are prone to. But in reality, we are all more attracted to the familiar than the unfamiliar. This is because we prefer those things that we feel safe around. If if somebody is Asian, for instance, and they grow up with Asian parents, and then later in life they are introduced to people who look differently than their parents, they will probably be more attracted to people who look like their parents because those are the people that raised them. Those are the people that they feel comfortable around. Those are the people who love them and kept them safe all their lives. This kind of familiarity bias is not racism. Racism is, very specifically, a belief that one race is superior or inferior to other races. It is a conscious acceptance of that idea. That is racism. Nothing more, nothing less. In the same way, our natural tendencies toward tribalism, based in what I think is familiarity bias, does not equate to contemporary ideas around identity politics. In the same way, our natural tendencies toward tribalism, based in what I think is familiarity bias, does not equate to contemporary ideas around identity politics. Honestly, I'm not really as equipped as Jordan Peterson is to explain specifically the neo-Marxist basis for identity politics, but from what I've heard him talk about, it's based on the false belief that there is no objective truth. Truth is subjective, and that's why leftists are always saying her truth, or his truth, or their truth, and they're always trying to validate these personal truths as if there can be dozens of truths that are equally as valid. As if there's dozens of truths that are equally valid. Well, if that's true, then we have to accept that neo-Nazis have a perfectly valid truth. That we have to accept that serial killers have personal truths that are perfectly valid. No, no. There is reality, and then there is delusion. The concept of identity politics is based in delusion. The concept that one should not be judged on the color of one's skin, but rather by the content of their character, that concept is based in reality. When the left used to quote Martin Luther King Jr. and used to say that very thing, they were people who could be reasoned with. But when the left accepted neo-Marxist identity politics, they shifted from a group who could be reasoned with to a group who could not. 
If you want to talk about tribalism, that's fine. I'm not a fan of tribalism, which is why I don't like the identity politics types. And I don't care if they're on the right or the left. I think the right-wing use of identity as the primary marker for human categorization is as reprehensible and dangerous as it is on the left. My problem with the left at the moment, the fundamental problem with the radical left, is that they're hyper-dominant in academia. And that's not good. And that's not my opinion. You can go look at Jonathan Haidt's data and see for yourself. And he's as moderate a person as you could hope to find. And probably less prone to anger than me. And, and I agree with you. I find a lot of students phenomenally irritating. But I would question how much power they have it's in contrast the to the things that I find more worrying that are happening in the world today, right? Or even the professors, right? Even Look, the professors. 20 year olds don't have that much power, but they're not 20 forever. 10 years later, they're 30. And, and 20 years later, they're 40. Right. And, and whatever happens in the university happens everywhere five years later. And very, very sadly for people in my politics, left-wing politics, what happens to people as they get older is that they've traditionally got more conservative. So I don't think you can make a case that the, the, the current, where people are where they're 20 today is actually going to be the ideology that takes them all the way through their life. That's never been the case so No, but so it'll, be it'll be around long enough to do plenty of damage, like it already is. Okay, but so. even if we accept that students and their POMO professors are quite annoying, which I think is probably I agree, something I it's agree not, with. They're not are. just annoying. Like, they're destroying the universities, and that's not a good thing. And they're particularly destroying the social sciences and the humanities. The sciences are safe so far, but not for long. Because the scientists in particular are terrible at politics, and the left-wing activists are great at politics. And so they'll win eventually. The National Science Foundation is already introducing diversity requirements for hiring in mathematics in universities. It's like, good luck with that. That's not going to work. There are hardly any mathematical geniuses. If you start putting all sorts of arbitrary restrictions on their hiring, you're just going to not end, you're going to end up not finding the ones that there are. So... Besides, I don't think that's true, world? actually, because if you say there are very few yeah, mathematical genes... Well, you know about it? Well, I'm, I want, next year I'm going to be a fellow at Oxford University, so I spend time talking to academics. I've talked to a lot of academics for my book. I do agree with you, there is an illiberal strain that is sweeping through a lot of universities. I don't think it's an existential threat, and I certainly don't think it is, to me, the biggest issue in world politics today. It's the one that I would choose personally. What do you think is the biggest issue? I think that the rise of strongmen, authoritarians around the world is very worrying, and that's one of the reasons that I find the subtitle of your book it fascinating. Because it's called an antidote to chaos. Why isn't it an antidote to order? Which you also say in its excessive manifestations is bad. I've said that. Well, you can't write a book about everything. No, no, no. But you've specifically chosen antidote to chaos. So yeah, why I is also chaos? Three hundred lectures online, and I talk plenty about the pathology of order in those lectures. Okay, but so I'm just I'm saying... I'm no fan of authoritarian strongmen, that's for sure. Well, that's good, but I do think that the way that you talk about order in the book is something that people will take away from it. Be specific. Okay, so let me think. Um, the way that you talk about natural dominance hierarchies in lobsters. Let's get on to the lobsters. Because I think that the, the, the thing that people take away from that is male lobsters compete for female lobsters, and that says something about society now, that's, that men need to be dominant in, in society. Because if lobsters do it, then there is something that we can read about humans from There's that There's nothing too. in that chapter at all that suggests that the way that men should succeed in human hierarchies is a consequence of the exercise of power. There's not one line in that entire book that's, that claims that, because it's not what I believe. Most human hierarchies, as I already pointed out, are hierarchies of competence, not power. Now, by my count, Helen Lewis, the interviewer, has been owned by Jordan Peterson exactly 1,327 times. Well done, Dr. Peterson. Well done.
Okay, so that's why we don't live in a patriarchal tyranny. And so if you want to be a successful man, then you should be competent. And that will move you up the hierarchy. And that will make you attractive, and for good reason. Unless you want an incompetent mate, which is possible and, and, and happens, but isn't something that I would recommend. 1,328 times. People will sometimes choose an incompetent mate because they're intimidated by competence. And so they'll settle for someone who they don't respect because they feel that they can master them and they won't be intimidated. But it's not a recipe for a happy life, I can tell you that. So there isn't a line in that chapter that talks about power as, as, as the proper means of conducting yourself in life. There's not a line in the book, and there's nothing in anything I've ever said that suggests that. Okay, no, I'm so yeah, But it's really important because people have read this chapter and they make exactly the argument that you make. And it's a misapprehension. So it's a, it's a misapprehension of the book. Okay, but if, if so many people are getting the same misapprehension, could it there, be there possible? There are so many people that oh. are getting it. There's two million people that have bought the book, and there's a very small handful of people who have a particular ideological perspective who enjoy developing that perspective because it indicates just what sort of reprehensible individual I am. But it has absolutely nothing to do with what I wrote or what I've said or what I believe. I don't believe that our fundamental hierarchies are based on power. I don't believe that the way that you move up our hierarchies is as a consequence of manifesting power. It's competence. Okay. My big problem with the lobsters is that it's scientifically bollocks, right? It's just you cannot read across from lobsters and what they do to what humans do. Of course do. you can. That's why serotonin works on lobsters. But it works you... in two different ways. So if serotonin makes lobsters more aggressive, it makes humans no, it makes them less more aggressive. Right? That's no, what happens. No, that's not right. That, that serotonin makes human beings more dominant but less aggressive. And the only reason it makes them more dominant is because they're less irritable and they're less defensively aggressive. So it's not bollocks. I know my neurochemistry. So if you're going to play neurochemistry, let's go and do it. Okay, well you say antidepressants work on lobsters. Yes, they do. In they make a lobster that's been defeated in a fight more likely to fight again. That's not the same mechanism that it's happens the same in mechanism. humans. Because yes, lobsters it is. don't the get same depressed as the way that humans are. I think you're anthropomorphizing into a ridiculous degree. These are I creatures that, that urinate out of their faces. I think that... Uh, the fundamental issue among um, knowledgeable uh, animal behaviorists is that anthropomorphization with animals is generally the appropriate tactic unless you have reason to doubt it, which is because there's continuity between us and animals rather than discontinuity. And the idea that the anthropomorphization of animals is inappropriate is something derived from 1950s behaviorism. Finish her! The highly trained affective neuroscientists and people who study motivation and emotion as well as neurochemistry know perfectly well that there is biological and behavioral continuity across the animal kingdom and way down into the kingdom as well, which is exactly why I chose lobsters, to indicate that there is so much continuity in the systems that allow us to estimate uh, status position that we share it with creatures that are a third of a billion years old. And the reason that I made that argument was to put paid at least into part, in part to the absurd Marxist proposition that hierarchical structures are a secondary consequence of Western civilization and free market economies, which is as preposterous a perspective as you could possibly develop about anything. Hierarchies are a third of a billion years old. You can't blame them on the West or men or capitalism. And we're wired for hierarchical perception in ways that you can po hardly possibly imagine. Even our ability to rank order a set of objects seems to be tightly linked to our ability to assess the relative status of people in our, in our social uh, milieus. I think I lost count, but I think Helen Lewis just got owned another seven million times 
in that last minute alone. So now, now I think we're at like 8,328,000 ownings. This is getting embarrassing. But who genuinely really today is arguing, apart from maybe three mad Marxist academics, that there is no such thing as hierarchy? Hierarchies. They're not, they're not arguing exist. that there's no such thing as hierarchy. Oh, there they're should be no such that, thing as hierarchies. Oh, there are plenty of them are arguing really? that. Really? Because I see that almost never in the wild as an, as an argument. I see people think that, that hierarchy should be based on merit and what they should be think, more. What do you equal? think the demand for equality of outcome is if it's not an attempt to flatten hierarchies or to, to eliminate them? What else could it possibly be? And you don't think the neo-Marxists and the postmodernists think that hierarchy is a social construction? Okay, you're not talking about the same people that I know, right. that's for sure. But Everything's a social construction for the social constructionists, including hierarchies. But I just don't think that is a very widely held view in the world. It might be among it's, it's liberal 20%, arts universities. 20% of social scientists identify as Marxist. And, and the where's, that, where's that statistic from? Look it up, on, look it up in, in Heights work. Okay. Well, you, no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm interested. I know, I, I've checked it out quite yeah, carefully. Yeah, but I'm just, it's I'm a perfectly valid statistic. I don't have the reference at hand. Yeah. So it's one in five. Okay. And there, the, the number of conservatives, or even liberals for that matter, in the social sciences and humanities is not only vanishingly small, but getting smaller. And you, you think the social constructionists believe that hierarchy is built into biology? They're not very good social constructionists if, that was, if that's what they believe. And the postmodernists and the neo-Marxists are radical social constructionists because they wouldn't believe that human beings are infinitely malleable and, and, and that we can be recreated in, in whatever image the ideologues might want to recreate us in if they didn't think that. And it's much more prevalent than you're admitting. I mean, there, these, there isn't a competing position on campuses except among the evolutionary biologists and the evolutionary psychologists, let's say, and they're under com complete attack. They're certainly next on the chopping block, as far as I can tell. I've been warning them for the last two years. Social constructionists don't like evolutionary psychologists, and they don't like biology. And I, I, I really don't understand why, except that it interferes with this idea that human beings are infinitely malleable and stops them from being able to blame hierarchy on the West. Look, if you're really concerned about the poor, as a, as a social democrat, let's say, the first thing you should do is abandon your presupposition that the dispossession produced by hierarchies is a consequence of the patriarchal structure of the West. It's a way deeper problem than that. So there have been people well, I mean, who've been dispossessed forever, way before capitalism. Okay, I, I think I would agree with that. So if, if it is a way deeper problem than that, how do you tackle it? Well, I don't know. Well, that's a bit... I mean, that, for someone as intelligent you that just throw their hands up and go, ooh, maybe some people There's are lots just of things I don't know poor. how to tackle. I don't know how to tackle the fact that people range, range extremely widely in their cognitive ability either. These are big problems. Right, but, but we I could know. start with a redistributive tax policy, right, where people who earn a lot pay more tax than people lower down the income scale to redistribute income. That was a fairly obvious way that you could make poor people less poor. You know what? That is a pretty obvious way that you can make poor people less poor temporarily. That's not an effective systematic approach to ending poverty. And drastic redistribution of wealth can have extremely deleterious effects on the overall economy. This woman is so brainwashed by the left that she appears to be ignorant of very basic economic theory. You don't even have to study economics to understand the futility of consistent redistribution of wealth. You just need to look at human motivation. You just need a very cursory knowledge of what happened in the Soviet Union. You just need to look at the news about Venezuela. This woman has blinders on. She's either just believing whatever she wants to believe or she's being incredibly disingenuous about what she actually knows. It's shocking to me that this woman is going into one of the most revered universities in the world, all the while showing the world how aggressively ignorant she is.
Uh, other things you said, for example, like uh, women wear rouge because it reminds men of ripe fruit. Right, well, for a start... Well, why do you think women wear rouge? I have absolutely no idea. But right, I will right, tell that's really not a very good answer. Well, yeah, you said before there were lots of things you don't know the answer to, but I'll tell yeah, you one but thing. You're, I'm Most not criticizing right. your perspective on this. You're criticizing mine, so I'm presuming okay, you have me... an alternative idea. Why, women, why do you think we're, women wear makeup? I, why do I you think they're an enormous... Not, but let me, let's, let's go back to why women wear rouge, because it reminds men of ripe fruit. Okay, for, first of all, not all ripe fruit is red. Uh, why would you, you want know, to... You know, we evolved want color to, vision to detect ripe fruit. Do you, you want to eat women? No. I think unless men are having sex you with might ripe fruit... You taste them. That's not really... Well. And where is the evidence that women who are redder in the cheeks are more, have more offspring? What do you think happens... During the sexual flush. But that's the key point, isn't it? Is that you would expect, actually, if this is a, a sexual selection, that women who are yeah, redder would have more children. We would get progressively of, redder over time. One of the hallmarks of youthful skin is the proclivity for it to flush red. And yes, youthful women have more children. It's a primary sign of fertility. That, I think you're using... What? Wait a second here. What do you think women wear makeup for? Come on, if you're going to go after me on this, okay. let, let, let's, let's, let women, people say, well, women wear makeup to feel better about themselves. That's it's not a very deep analysis. Why makeup? I'll Why tell facial you. makeup? I love this. Jordan Peterson is holding this woman's feet to the fire. This is something I have never seen Jordan Peterson do. I have been advocating this since the first interview I saw of Jordan Peterson. I've been saying that when somebody makes an accusation against him, he needs to get to the root of that accusation. He has to hold their feet to the fire. He needs to explore the specific claim in such a way that it absolutely crushes the accusation because that is what this tends to be. These interviews are not asking him questions, they're accusing him of things. And if you're accused of something, you need to actually destroy the accusation as quickly as possible. And it's a million times more fun to do it in the face of the accuser. Now, I, I am 100% sure that Jordan Peterson has not seen a single one of my videos. However, somehow, somebody has got it into his head that he needs to do this, or, or maybe he just himself realized that he needs to do this. However he figured it out, I could not be happier. I am thrilled that Jordan Peterson is finally grabbing hold of these interviewers by the scruff, metaphorically of course, and forcing them to face up to their accusations. Forcing them to clearly define what they're saying and then dismantling it in front of them. Not only is he finally doing this, but he's doing it more adeptly than I had ever imagined possible. I knew that he would be able to do it, I just didn't imagine with what absolute ferocity and effectiveness he would do it with. This is the best thing I have seen in a very, very long time. Well done, Jordan Peterson. Well done. I'll tell you why I wear makeup, which mm -hmm. is to stop the comments that I would get if I didn't wear makeup. And my gender, I always say my gender is low maintenance, right? I don't feel particularly like a woman inside. I don't really know what that would mean. But what I try and do is try and look, you know, in the same way that you get black women who talk about the problem with natural hair is it's seen as unprofessional, right? And as a woman, if you don't wear makeup, that is seen as a political choice. That is seen as something that, you know, you are... So you wear makeup to protect yourself from, from what? From, from judgment. men. No, no, but and, and tyrannical women as well, I would say. I think women very harshly judge each other's appearance and there are very good reasons for that. But probably because they've learned that from oppressive men. No, I don't think so. I don't well, think why do you think it is then? I think that, that women are encouraged to be seen as being in competition with each other.
encouraged? You don't think that there's anything about that that's natural, eh? Well, um, uh, I would be reluctant to get into that because I, I, I think you could talk about sex, intrasexual competition. I think that's a very big deal among the social sciences and, and evolutionary science. It's not my particular competence. But yeah, I wouldn't, my conception of the patriarchy is not that men are beastly to women. It is that there is a structure in which women participate too that overall privileges and benefits men in order to control female reproduction. And I think yeah. those are two very different things. You write in 12 Rules that you skipped a grade in school and you were small for your age. Do you think that shaped your personality and your experiences of life? You have got to be kidding me. Now she, now she's suggesting that Jordan Peterson has a Napoleon complex? Okay, this is a new one. You know what, now we're just getting into the territory of farce. I imagine that when she was writing this particular question at home, she was quite proud of herself for developing this psychological theory. She's like, oh yeah, oh yes. <laughs> what an idiot. Well, I did to some degree. <clears throat> made it difficult for me to participate in sports. I probably hung around with rougher kids that I might have otherwise. And it made me more verbally, more capable of verbally defending myself. But other than that, I don't think it had much of an effect. I think I pretty much left all of that behind. That's very good. Also, the other thing I was really interested in was that you married your teenage sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I met her when I was eight. So we've known each other for 50 years, yeah. So this is, I think, really fascinating. So I, I read that and I thought that was quite moving. And yeah. you're now the pretty big lobster. Mm-hmm. And yet you are monogamous, you're faithful to your wife. You don't, you, know, you don't want to go around impregnating every woman that you see, right? No, no, one woman's enough trouble. Right, so, so I think that's, re- to me that was really interesting because that's a way in which we are very obviously very different from animal society. And to well, me, we're takes- not that different. I mean, there, there are plenty of societies where exactly that happens. Right, but so. you, you've been able to overcome that biological urge, right? And so in the sense that maybe there are other biological urges, such as men's propensity towards violence, that might also be overcome. Well, it's not self-evident that you want it to be overcome. I mean, you don't know what goes along with it. You know, I mean, obviously, first of all, defining violence isn't that straightforward. How about use of force in self-defense? Does that constitute violence? I think to me that's a separate category of violence. I think well, self-defense. But it's not that easy to distinguish right. them. Like if you're Hey, we finally got Jordan Peterson's mic working. All right. In the book you say that actually if you feminize men that might give them more of a, you know, might have a more of an allure towards, you know, these very fascist ideologies. Oh, there's ideologies. no doubt about that. That's that's standard psychoanalytic. That's like psychoanalysis 101. If you repress something, it comes back with a vengeance. Okay, so tell me what you mean by feminizing in that sense. Because to me, if you don't mind me saying so, um, you are a man who is quite feminine. You're in touch with your feminine side. You are very well dressed. You talk a lot about your diet. You've talked about your emotions. Oh, I you, hate talking about my diet. Right, but you, you cry in public. Mm. You, um, you enjoy spending time with your kids. You know, all of these things that are not no, stereotypical. sad, isn't it? But they're not stereotypically male, and I think hmm. that's very admirable. Pretty strange behavior for a patriarchal tyrant. Well, that's why I think that you're probably, in some ways, you're not a patriarchal tyrant, or that actually all of our programming, if you want to call it that in biology, is, is, is overcomable, because you are... It's f- integratable. Right, but you are a man who some people would say has a lot of feminine traits like that, and I don't... Mm. St- do you think that means that you are now being in the allure of authoritarian, fascistic ideologies, because you you know, you're baking cakes? This woman betrays her insane stereotypical bigotry here in this question. Women do not have a monopoly on spending time with kids. Women do not have a monopoly on dressing well. If we associate some traits with femininity and others with masculinity, it does not mean that men exclusively engage in masculine things or women exclusively engage in feminine things. It is, it's merely to suggest that these 
traits seem to exist in a more dominant way among women or in a more dominant way among men. There are, of course, men who find any kind of feminine behavior abhorrent, and there are women who find any kind of masculine behavior abhorrent, but for the most part, these are all human traits. Everybody cries. Everybody has the capacity to bake a cake. Some of the best bakers in the world are men. None of this indicates that our biology is overcomable. It's just this woman doesn't understand the nature of human beings. She has this fantasy about the male patriarchy and that all men are masculine tyrants who find femininity deplorable and that you know, and she needs to somehow inject feminist ideas into the world. She thinks she needs to convince everybody that femininity is okay. But nobody hates femininity. The only people who actually hate femininity, as far as I've seen, are feminists. Butch lesbians hate femininity. Crazy feminist university professors hate femininity. Helen, your haircut, your choice of makeup, and your wardrobe indicate to me that you hate femininity. But... But no men hate femininity, all right? Men love femininity. Most, most of us conservatives are fighting to conserve femininity. We are fighting to protect it from crazy feminists like you who are constantly railing against anything traditionally female. Jordan Peterson is not feminine because he spends time with his kids or that he loves his wife or that he wears nice suits. It just makes him a good man who dresses well. This woman sees everything through a bifurcated lens of male slash female. She condemns division, but she seems to see the world in a purely divisive way. I think Helen Lewis needs to take a look in the mirror and really reflect on her own perceptions of the world. It's not Trump that's divided everybody. It's not Jordan Peterson. It's the Helen Lewis's of the world. Did you have different ambitions for your daughter and for your son? Some of them were different. I, I encouraged my daughter in her desire to be a mother, which is not something I did with my son. Did you encourage him in his desire to be a father? Absolutely. Right. So you encourage both of them to be a parent. Right. But those are different. Yeah. I, so, I, I, you know, I believe. And, yeah. I mean, and, and, and in some sense, I, I think it's, it's harder for young women because, of course, the, the problem of integrating family with career is a more complex problem for women to solve. So, and I spent a lot of time talking to her about how she might solve that. I wouldn't say that we came up with anything that was spectacularly original or successful, but I at least let her know that whatever pathway she chose was fine with me if she, as long as she was being honest with herself about what it was that she wanted. But also that, you know, I'm not a fan of the idea that the most fundamental orientation that a person is likely to have in their life is career. I don't believe that's true for most people. I certainly don't believe it's true for most women. And I think the evidence supports that claim quite straightforwardly. So, um, However, it is the only thing that you get paid for under capitalism. <laughs> right? Man, live. But that's, but that's How true. How can you say something like that? Paid it's so cliched. Well, it's so painful to hear that. Maybe. I love it when Jordan Peterson reacts this way. The people who interview him are often so delusional that they say incredibly absurd things that, you know, sometimes he doesn't even know how to respond to them. All he could do here is laugh. The woman is suggesting that humans only value choices that make money, which is, of, of course, an absurdity. There's a girl I know who, who recently left an incredibly high-paying job to pursue an acting career. Now, it's very unlikely that she's going to be a successful actress. However, she was feeling absolutely unfulfilled in the corporate job she had, and she wanted to do something creative. She, she did not elevate financial success as the ultimate happiness in her life. If you read through pretty much 
any woman's Facebook or Instagram feed, you'll see plenty of inspirational quotes, many of which talk about finding happiness. I have never read one that says, the path to happiness is making a lot of money. I mean, this is despite the fact that in a practical sense, it does cost money to live, and the more money you have, the freer you are to do things that you want to do in life. Yet people still recognize that professional success is not necessarily the best path to real happiness. We've all seen too many cases where people have invested all their time and energy into a career, become very successful, and then found themselves utterly miserable. We all know that we have to balance financial success with all sorts of other things that will make us happy. And most of us recognize that in some cases, it's best to compromise our career for other things that'll make us happier. This is why a lot of women leave the workforce to have children. This woman, Helen Lewis, is regurgitating the classic feminist fable that the only thing that can make a woman truly happy is success in a career. It's so unbelievably stupid that Jordan Peterson bursts out laughing. Honestly, I don't know why feminists continue to push this idea that there needs to be equality in the workforce. They, they, they just can't seem to recognize that a lot of women, the vast majority of women, are happier having a family and dedicating their lives to that. Helen Lewis might not be happy doing that, but most women are. Feminists just can't handle this truth. So they live in this fantasy world where no women want to be moms or wives, but rather, you know, they all want to have careers and they're all being oppressed by men. I mean, it's just laughably false. I've seen very few non-acrimonious divorces. And they're very hard on kids. So I, think I don't think anything that makes them easier is a very good idea. It might be good in the short term, but it's not good in the long term. Unless, unless you don't think that marriage is a useful institution. And if you think that it's part of the patriarchal tyranny, then you might think that as well. So, but... It's a very useful institution, mostly for kids. So I agree that I, I'm married. Um, modern marriage has a lot to recommend it. I do also think it is a patriarchal institution. It is literally... Why? Of course you think that. Well, because you think virtually everything that occurs in our society is a patriarchal institution. And it's easy to think that because then you only have to think one thing. You could you have a one thing answer for everything. You could let it's like me... It's part of the patriarchal institution. I wish this woman was actually listening to what Jordan Peterson was saying. I mean... She can hear him. She's responding to what he's saying better than most interviewers, actually. But, but she's not really considering his points. She hears his words, but she filters them through this program in her mind that determines the best way to contradict him. She's, she's taking everything that he says, and she's trying to find a way to be right. She's actually better at this than most people who have interviewed Jordan Peterson in the past. She, she seems to know her feminism very well. She seems to be very well educated on all these issues, albeit wrongly. As Ronald Reagan once said... The problem with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant, it's that they know so much that isn't so. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. Now... <laughs> this woman knows a lot about a lot, but it's all rubbish. If she would actually just listen to what Jordan Peterson is saying, consider it, open her mind to the possibility that he's right about feminism and the patriarchy and hierarchies and all these things, she might actually start to understand the way the world really works and start to draw herself out of this leftist delusion and into a realistic perspective of the world. Sadly, we all know that's not going to happen. You know, the part of the problem, too, is with this sort of discussion is that it's, and this is why I consider it a a manifestation of ideological possession. It's predictable. Well, that's what... You having, know, knowing your stance a, on... But having a coherent ideology does mean that it is predictable because... You don't it need is, an ideology. It is one logical thing that flows from another and all those pieces tessellate together. So what I find very interesting about your thinking, I find it quite slightly baffling, is that I don't really see how all the pieces fit together. The idea that, 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 some, that something should be consistent... You, you were 
talking about the necessity for consistency and ideology. It's like, I'm not hearing what you think. I'm hearing what, how you're able to represent the ideology you were taught. And it's not that interesting because I don't know anything about you. I could replace you with someone else who thinks the same way. And that means you're not here. That's what it means. It's not pleasant. So you're not, you're not, you're not drawing, you're not integrating the specifics of your personal experience with what you've been taught to synthesize something that's genuine and surprising and engaging in a narrative sense as a consequence. And that's the pathology of ideological possession. Okay, he, he literally says what I just said a moment ago. You woman are not saying anything interesting. You're not saying anything unique. She's not listening to any ideas outside what she's been taught about this feminist stuff. She's utterly encapsulated by an ideology and she refuses to listen to any ideas outside of it. Listening to ideas outside of an ideology is not the same thing exactly as thinking for yourself, but it's but it is allowing yourself to be exposed to enough ideas that it might spark your own ideas. So although Jordan Peterson and I aren't making exactly the same observation, we're making observations that complement each other. It's not good that I, I know where you stand on things once I know a few things. It's like, why have a conversation? I already know where you stand on things. I bet you don't know where I stand on all things. I, I, I would hope that that, that was true. Okay, uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about transgender issues. That's fun. What do you think I think about transgender issues? I suspect that you think that um, gender expression, gender identity um, are fundamentally social constructs, but I could be wrong. No, I believe that there are definitely some biological differences between the sexes. We've observed them. I do believe that gender is a hugely powerful social structure that we've built on top of that, that it is largely but not entirely socially constructed. I think when you look back through the history, you know, biological differences have consistently shrunk. Uh, like we were talking in the 80s. They haven't in Scandinavia. They've magnified. Okay, but we were talking in the 80s. That's actually an important exception because Scandinavia has gone farther than any other area, the Scandinavian countries, in establishing egalitarian social policy. And the differences in interest and career choice and personality between men and women have grown as a consequence, not shrunk. Which, which is exactly the opposite of what the social constructionists predict. But I also just suggest that they're malle malleable, actually, rather than fixed. Well, of course they're malleable. No one would ever suggest otherwise. Right. So that's but, what I mean. But, so I but think they're it's not malleable effect. in the direction that the social constructionists presume. As you flatten out the sociological landscape, you maximize the biological differences. No one saw that coming. And you might think, well, it's a handful of right-wing scientists who are pushing that. It's like, no, it's not. It's mainstream psychology, and there aren't any radical right-wingers in mainstream psychology. And everyone who discovered that was absolutely shocked by it. And these papers have been cited by thousands of people, mm -hmm. and they have tens of thousands of subjects, and they've been done on virtually national-level samples, cross-culturally. But I also so. think the behaviour in Scandinavia has changed. For example, a lot more men take um, paternity leave now that it, there is a portion that is reserved purely for men. That doesn't seem to be making them wildly unhappy. So I think that there are definitely behavioural things that are susceptible to nudges by society, by government and by the state, and that do change the way that people behave. This woman is using, as an example of socially manipulated behaviour in men, an invitation to take time off work. She's saying that because Scandinavian governments have offered men paid time off work, and the men have taken that paid time off work, it suggests that masculine behaviour in men is subject to influence by government legislation. This is literally the stupidest argument I have ever heard in my life, 
ever. First of all, this is the worst possible example of manipulation I could possibly imagine. You give people something they want, and they take that thing which they want, and you use that as an example of manipulation? If you give anybody the opportunity to have paid time off work, they're going to take it. <laughs> Secondly, nobody in the world argues against the efficacy of legislative manipulation of the populace. Of course, the threat of imprisonment reduces the number of murders every year. The question is not whether or not government legislation might be effective, but rather, is it a good idea? Okay, climate change. Uh, I saw you posting a, a link to a study suggesting that you know a lot of the the way that it's talked about has been overhyped. What do you what do you what are your beliefs about climate well, change? Well, I spent a lot of time... I don't really have beliefs about climate change, I wouldn't say. I mean, I think the climate is probably warming, uh, but it's been warming since the last ice age, so I don't but know But it's exactly dramatically accelerated in the la- even in the last couple yeah, of decades. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. And Possibly. It's not so obvious. I spent quite a bit of time going through the relevant literature. I, sp- I read about 200 books on ecological... What would you call it? On ecology and e- economy when I worked for the UN for about a two-year period, and it's not so obvious what's happening, just like with any complex system. The problem I have, fundamentally, isn't really the, a climate change issue. It's that I find it very difficult to distinguish valid environmental claims from environmental claims that are made as a, a what would you call it, secondary anti-capitalist front, essentially. So it's so politicized that it's very difficult to parse out the data from the politicization. This is an excellent point. I'm actually going to do a pretty comprehensive segment on climate change when I break down the Trump interview with Leslie Stahl, which I'm, I'm going to post soon. So, so I'm not going to go into that much detail here. I, I would just add that there is some real evidence that climate change is having a positive impact on the planet and only speculation that, you know, that it might cause negative impacts in the future. What I'm talking about specifically is the reforestation of Iceland. I'll talk about this in more depth in my Trump video, but if you want to research that, just type into your search engine, Iceland forest climate change. The book, you know, is so much about things being in balance and harmony, right? And order and chaos outweigh each other. Well, what overpopulation has done is got to the same... Who says we have overpopulation? Well, I think that it's very difficult to see under the current model of fossil fuel-based capitalism. Sorry to use that word. I know it upsets you. But... That yeah, but that is what you until we've until we've run out, when we run out of fossil fuels. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, it, it will happen. Yeah, because there is people a have been saying that's going to happen for fifty years, and now that now the United States is a net exporter of fossil fuel. Right. And so no one saw that coming, did they? But it happened. And you're right; that might be the case. But at the moment, I would say that you know China is putting up new coal-fired power stations, you know, by the bucket load. Yeah. It is entirely possible that the stuff that the developed nations did, that now developing nations did, you know, and yeah, now well, they'll get, to make themselves they'll get richer. concerned about clean air when they get richer. That's what the data indicate. Once you get GDP up to about five thousand dollars per year, people start to become concerned with environmental issues. So if we make that people rich late, fast right? enough, I don't think so. It'll happen too late for some things. It looks like we're going to top out at about $9 billion. I think we can handle that. I think probably people, one of the problems that'll beset us in 100 years, assuming there are even creatures like us around in 100 years, is that there'll be too few people, not too many. You know the projections top out at about $9 billion. It's only $2 billion more than we have now. Oh, there's every reason to assume that we can cope with that, especially given the rapid decreases in poverty around the world at the moment. There's a bit of a bottleneck. There'll probably be some more extinction. What we're doing to the oceans by overfishing doesn't seem very smart. But we've only been aware of our role as planetary stewards since 1960, I would say. 
And we're not doing too bad for people who just woke up to the fact that we actually have, that we're actually a planetary force. And I don't think that we're overpopulated. I think all the arguments that, all the, all the people who made those arguments in the 1960s, like Paul Ehrlich, I think he wrote The Population Bomb, predicted mass starvation by the year 2000. He was absolutely and completely wrong. No, we've been very lucky with things like golden rice, for example, and genetic engineering of crops. I think that's... Yeah, it's that's not luck. That's, no, well, no, it is. It is. I agree. There, you know, human ingenuity is a huge part of that, definitely. Right. Well, in more people, you know, more ingenuity. This is a hugely important point. Jordan Peterson sort of glosses over it, but but what he says here is incredibly important. The more people, the more ingenuity. Because of the internet, even the poorest people in the world now have access to a much broader wealth of information than they ever had in the history of the world. We're not just seeing innovation come out of the U.S., Great Britain, Switzerland, Germany. Sweden, Japan, the usual suspects. We're now seeing innovation coming out of India and China. And although these countries have enormous amounts of poverty, their massive populations and the great wealth that these countries have accumulated, and, and because of their growing education systems, they are now becoming productive contributors to the world. Actually, I love this entire rant of Jordan Peterson's. He quickly dismantles a truckload of leftist demagoguery in, in just like a few sentences. It's pretty spectacular. One more area that you've talked about that's caused controversy is gay parenting. You said the, the devil is in the detail and you want to see more studies on that. What do you think might be the adverse effects of having same-sex parents? Well, I don't think we know um, what modelling is optimal for children. That's really the issue. I mean, I suspect that two parents are better than one. Suspect, right? I don't know. Um, one parent is definitely worse than two. We know that. Um, but we don't know what exposure to role models, say, is necessary for the continuity of maternal behavior or for the adoption of functional gender roles. We don't know any of that. And so that's the variable, obviously. You know, no one knows what the consequence of being raised with two people of the same sex is. Maybe none. But, right. But so there doesn't seem to be any evidence. Maybe there will be some found, but at the moment there is no evidence that there is any problem with having gay parents. My mother and my father are famous gay authors. I, growing up, was expected to be the perfect patsy. I was expected to be absolutely in favor of all things gay because since I was raised by gay people, I know that those bad straights are just out to hurt us. Now here's the problem. My father believed that homosexuality is innate to all people, but that the only way to get a child to embrace his natural homosexuality is to make sure he has same-sex experience before he is old enough to be ruined by a girl. So no, we are not born gay. We are created that way by adults. Thank you very much, adults. As you might imagine, both of my parents used me. It's hard to talk about, but I will. My father and mother both very much wanted me to be gay. My father went to jail because I put him there, not for what he did to me when I was five, but for what he had been doing to other young boys since long before I was born. I tried when I was 13 to have him put in jail because he was sleeping with 
yet another boy prostitute under our roof. I knew because I talked to the kids. I talked to them all the time. They were my friends. They were my age. My mother and her female lover, who was with her for 20 years, did nothing. They didn't put my father in jail. They didn't make him stop. Ten years later, my father molested a child in front of me. And finally, I went to the cops. At the Worldcon, I was called a bigot. Of course I'm a bigot. What else could I possibly be? Could I be a child who is living in hell? A child who tried to commit suicide the first time when I was 10 and spent my teens sleeping on couches so that I wouldn't have to be yet another victim of my parents' friends or them. What's the consequence of that for children in those families? I don't know. Okay, let's talk about free speech to finish on. You write in your book about Nietzsche, who became the Nazi's favourite intellectual. What a bitchy thing to say. She says that Jordan Peterson has studied Nietzsche, and then says, who became the Nazi's favourite intellectual. Okay, so, so anybody who studies Nietzsche is, is like the Nazis. That's a beautiful association, very appropriate. Why make this association is purely to demonize Jordan Peterson. There's absolutely zero reason to bring that up otherwise. I bet if this woman gave me a comprehensive list of all her biggest influences, I could make an equally comprehensive list of horrible people who are also influenced by everybody on the list. Merely because you've studied the work of great men, you know, whose work has also been studied by horrible people, that does not make you a horrible person. This is the bitchiest thing that she has said in the entire interview. How is this woman respected by any employer? Well, I mean, I suppose if you're ill-intentioned, you will hire ill-intentioned people. Do you worry about where, you, you know, where your work might be taken and, and used by other people? I saw you posing with... Um, I worry about that all the time. ...with a Pepe flag. Oh. I can't believe you brought that up. Right, but I just think it's... The, Seriously, you, I yeah. can't believe you brought that up. You should go online. Yeah, I do. There, there's a... Believe an, me, an, I do. There's a video uh, called, I think it's called, Is Jordan Peterson a Darling of the Alt-Right? Have you, have, you have you watched the video of the person who put up that peppy flag with me? He's no, online. But well, I go have, watch it. I have seen... You wouldn't, I would say... And why are you concerned about Peppy anyways? Jesus, he disappeared like three years ago. It is... And most of that was trolling by young guys who were trying to drag the media into idiot accusations like the idea that this was a white supremacist gesture, which I was asked about on CBC. It's like, no, it wasn't. It was Fortran trolls playing the media for fools, which worked. And much of the peppy thing was that as well. Okay, but the problem with people ironically pretending to be Nazis on the internet... They weren't pretending to be Nazis. But no, this is a separate phenomenon, and the 4chan definitely do ironically pretend to be all of the worst things they can possibly be, is that some people take that very seriously. There was a case in America recently of a guy who stabbed his father because he had thought that his father was a Democrat, He'd got very, he was writing stuff for um, a conservative website... He'd got very into the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. He's probably paranoid. Right. So there are people yeah, who take this stuff very, paranoid. very seriously and yeah, they latch onto it. What's your point? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, how much responsibility do you feel that you have, particularly guys at the alt-right, who, as you say, some of them have enjoyed your work and say, no, I'm, not one of, I'm not one of you guys. I'm not with you guys. They haven't enjoyed my work. I've definitely read bits on the internet. Read more. Okay. Find some evidence. I'm, I'm extraordinarily sick and tired of this particular accusation slash line of questioning. I'm no fan of the identitarian right. 
the ethno-nationalists, the alt-right. First of all, what do you mean by alt-right exactly? Do you mean ethno-nationalists? Do you mean white supremacists? No, I mean people who are on the right but have got their power base outside the traditional media. They see themselves as an alternative. So I see them coming That's a up pretty loose definition through that of the strain alt-right. of Rush Limbaugh kind of um, talk radio, right? People who see themselves in opposition to an Rush establishment. Rush Limbaugh is not the alt-right. No, he's been around for 30 years. Right, so he's the progenitor of what I see now, Breitbart and things like that, are the new media version of that very old media Well, let's format. define what constitutes alt-right first. For me, they're ethno-nationalists. They tend to be white supremacists. And generally, when people tar me with an alt-right epithet, the reason they're doing that is to associate me with those people. They don't like me. And the reason for that is that as may, I've made it very clear, not only in my videos, but on Twitter, that I don't like them. I don't like their anti-Semitism. I don't like their use of identity politics. I don't agree with their aims. I think that their notion is something like, well, if everybody's going to play identity politics, we're going to play it too, and we're going to win. And I can certainly understand that motivation, but I think it's a bad game all around. And I think the only reason that I was ever associated in any sense whatsoever with anything to do with the alt-right was because it was extremely convenient of the radical leftists, who I fundamentally detest, to paint me as a representative of that viewpoint. Right. The, other than that, zero. Now, here, that's, okay, but that's not what I did. You say it, so I no point did I say you were. Well, you brought up the whole peppy right, thing. But I did bring that. But there was a reason I did that, which is that Nietzsche himself said I'm an anti-anti-Semite, right? And yet his ideology and his philosophy ended up being used by the Nazis. So my question to you is, how much responsibility do you feel about the it way in which your work is It isn't even what I feel. It's not used. how much responsibility I feel. It's how much responsibility I take. Right. Right. And I take as much responsibility as I possibly can, right, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Right? I'm going around the world, I'm talking in different cities, I'm talking to people as much as I can, I'm putting out content that I think is useful for people online, and I'm clarifying what I think. I have 300 videos on YouTube. Virtually, for all intents and purposes, every single word I've said to students in a professional capacity since 1992. And despite the fact that I have innumerable, highly motivated enemies, they haven't been able to find one thing I've said in 30 years that, uh, what would you say, justifies any of those accusations, or any other accusations for that matter. About the Pepe flags, I just wonder if that's something that you regret now, that you wouldn't do again if you, if you had the opportunity. Uh, I don't think I'll betray my former self. We'll just leave it where it is. I think that the Pepe formulators did a wonderful job of trolling the standard media. I don't think that they were what everyone presumed them to be. Underneath it all, I don't find it very ironic, actually. What don't you find ironic? That a lot of the kind of 4chan culture, which is saying, I'm just going to say the worst possible thing that I can say just to prove that I can say it because free speech is still alive. I think that in itself is quite poisonous to the discourse. I think I try and conduct myself online in a relatively civilised manner. I do not always succeed, but I do not think just going into a room and screaming epithets is something that I need to do on a daily basis to prove that free speech isn't dead. I don't think this woman knows what trolling is. I went on, I did a, a panel a while ago with Zaganara, a, a Burmese comedian, who was imprisoned for making a joke, right? And mm. we are not yet at that stage. I think, undoubtedly, I get... We're not. We're damn close. Really? Um, how about the guy with the pug in the UK? Count Dankula. That's the one. Right, but he did actually, I mean... That, that, he that was, was a joke. I, you I, might not have liked it. I didn't say it was a good joke. I didn't say it was an appropriate joke. I didn't say any of that. 
I didn't say it was a well thought through joke, but it was a joke. Yeah, I don't. I just fundamentally not, don't believe that it was a joke. I believe that it was camouflaged yep. as a joke, and that's what it kind of comes yeah, across. Right. And I well, that's that exactly what you would believe if you were inclined to persecute comedians. No, I'm not inclined to persecute someone. Well, you're inclined to persecute him. I don't think he's a comedian, and I don't think I I I I, I would have to go and look at the circumstances of that case. But I this is what they're talking about. My girlfriend is always ranting and raving about how cute and adorable her wee dog is. And so I thought I would turn them into the least cute thing that I could think of, which is a Nazi. Zikail. Zikail. Who's a good wee Nazi? So this guy, as a prank, made his girlfriend's dog, who she is constantly saying is cute, to do what he believed was the least cute thing he could imagine. He taught the dog to do a Nazi salute. This is a hilarious prank. Now, I wouldn't do this because I don't hate my girlfriend, and, I mean, it's not really my kind of humor. But nevertheless, I think it's hilarious anyway. I love that this guy did this. Because of this, this guy was convicted in Britain of breaching the Communications Act of 2003. This is completely mental. But I, I think... He didn't like his girlfriend's pug and thought he would teach it to do something reprehensible as a joke. Right, but I see you getting involved, say, tweeting Douglas Murray's article about Tommy Robinson, and I think you mm -hmm. see that as a free speech issue, and that's not how I see Tommy Robinson's case at all. I see that as contempt of court, someone who endangered a grooming mm -hmm. trial. I see it as very fortunate that Tommy Robinson didn't die in prison. I think our Br British prisons are less inhumane than American prisons, but they are still brutal places to be. However, I do think that was an appropriate punishment for somebody who tried to collapse a grooming trial. Tried to collapse a grooming trial? What the hell is she talking about? He, he literally read news reports about the trial that were written by other reporters. How could what Tommy Robinson did have had any effect on the outcome of the trial? It had absolutely zero effect on the trial. This is a BS excuse that was used to persecute this man. This woman has her own ideas about how the world should be, and anybody who disagrees with her in her mind should be crushed. We should use the full force of the law to manipulate society to conform to her ideas of how the world should be. I have slowly been losing respect for this woman as the interview has progressed, but here she has reached a new low. When did you last change your mind about something important? I, well, I can tell you. I mean, um, one thing I've learned in the last two years is that I think I overestimated there's an obesity epidemic in North America perhaps throughout the Western world. I think I overestimated the degree to which that was a consequence of a sedentary lifestyle and overestimated the degree to which a lack of discipline was contributing to it. I think, I think much more now that it's an illness. So I've, I have a lot more sympathy for the hypothesis that the obesity epidemic is actually a consequence of a of a of an illness of a broad scale illness isn't exactly right mm. it's a dietary problem fundamentally and finally so, how would you like to be remembered as someone honest dr jordan peterson thank you very much In the end, I don't think this was quite as contentious an interview as the Kathy Newman interview or, or some of the others. 
I think this woman, Helen Lewis, came to this interview extremely well prepared. I, I think she was nervous about getting the same treatment as Kathy Newman, and she really wanted to hold her own against Jordan Peterson. Of course, at every point in the interview, she got owned. Uh, in truth, I, I suspect that she actually does not realize this. She probably thinks that she did a really good job. She ended the interview with a quick-fire question round that was not as contentious as the rest of the interview. This was a very good idea, because the last thing that you see in the interview is a sort of benign series of questions that, that don't make her look as though she's biased or on the attack. But make no mistake, she is biased, and she was absolutely on the attack. I think this interview might be my favorite of all time attack interview against Jordan Peterson. Because this woman was so thorough and touched on so many different topics, Jordan Peterson was able to not just destroy her positions, but also he was given an opportunity to explain the, the more rational conservative positions on all of these different issues. I think the more opportunities that rational people have to explain rational positions about the various issues we're contending with in our contemporary society, the better. It's funny because this woman set out trying to undermine Jordan Peterson, and she ended up giving him a platform to educate the world. I was very satisfied with this interview, and I hope you were too. I highly recommend watching the interview in its entirety if you have not done so already. It's a long one, but it's well worth it. Well, that's it for me. If you like my videos and you want to contribute to this channel and help spread reason and rationality throughout the world, please click on the link to my Patreon page. You'll find that down in the description. If you like this video, please hit the like button. If you want to see more videos like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, you're probably my former boss at that valet place. Good night. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Now, 